0: Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast. In this episode, Dr. Man shares the audio portion of his April 8, 2021 webinar discussion with Joan Williams. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, Today, I have uh, Joan Williams with me. Uh, Joan is a professor at UC Hastings at the College of Law and is the author of one of my absolute favorite books that I've read in the past year uh, called White Working Class. It's a, uh, as I described to Jonas, a blessedly uh, short book that was really insightful, uh, filled with stories, insights. And I think I learned more from this book than perhaps I've read, uh, than I learned from many of the other books I've read this year. So uh, I am really, really looking forward to this conversation, John. So thank you for uh, thank you for being here. Um, and a special thank A special thanks also to Felicia uh, from uh, HBR Press who was able to connect us. So uh, thanks, Felicia. Um, And uh, so next week, I am absolutely thrilled that I get to have uh, an opportunity to have a conversation with uh, former Congressman Mike Rogers, who his big thing these days is 5G Huawei. This is a competitive threat. This is a big challenge. This is an intelligence need. And Coming from Mike, uh, this is a big deal. This is a big statement. He is the former chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, that is the committee within the uh, U.S. Congress that allocates approximately $70 billion to all of the U.S. intelligence efforts. So uh, so I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to that conversation about 5G and the future of intelligence, surveillance, et cetera, uh, next week, uh, next Thursday, in fact, at 10 a.m. Eastern. Uh, So uh, the sign-up invitation will go out shortly. Uh, Last week, I had Sarah Seeger, uh, MIT professor. We talked about space. We talked about alien life. We talked about uh, her own personal career trajectory, Uh, a MacArthur grant-winning genius, Um, a really insightful conversation about something that, unfortunately, probably far too few of us spend time thinking about, uh, which is what's happening off this planet. Um, before that, I had Michael Howell, uh, Michael, uh, former Solomon Brothers trader who pioneered the global liquidity model, uh, a bit financial in terms of the conversation, but uh, really shed light on what does it mean when people say there's too much money in the world or the mon- world's flooded with money. Uh, and so that replay is also available. Uh, before that, I had John Hunter, fourth grade teacher. Uh, John pioneered the peace game and has worked with kids from all over the place, uh, teaching them how to cooperate, develop empathy, understand other people's perspectives, and and sort of connect the dots. Uh, he also had some fun stories about how Leon Panetta and the Pentagon invited him in to talk about the peace game and how they could learn from these fourth graders. Uh, so a, a cool conversation. Uh, Jim Latinsky, Before we talked about MP Materials, which is America's largest rare earth mine, um, and in particular during this time of U.S.-China rivalry. Uh, Rare Earths is a potential flashpoint, and Jim is the CEO and founder and chairman of MP Materials, uh, bringing home that supply chain to provide U.S. resilience, at least in terms of Rare Earths. Uh, Before that, we had Danielle DiMartino Booth, author of FedUp, talked about US Fed policy, pay attention to the bond markets, and that'll telegraph what's going to happen in equity markets. Uh, An interesting conversation. Again, that replay is available. Emily diller talked about standards and how technology standards, as as sort of arcane a topic as that sounds, actually result in a lot of influence and a lot of information flow. And again, the US-China dynamic came up there. Uh, Kevin Warren, commissioner of the Big Ten, uh, we talked sports. We talked about compensation of student athletes. We talked about athletics in a time of COVID. Uh, we talked about uh, his own personal background, a quite inspiring personal story where a, a pretty serious and significant personal injury early in life changed his whole trajectory uh, and led him into sports and he was a professional NFL uh, player and uh, obviously now continues to be involved with sports in a professional level. Um, Gilman Louie, uh, before that, Gilman was the founder of Incutel. Uh, the CIA's venture capital arm, and so uh, surveillance uh, uh, was his topic, uh, but also some fun stories about investing uh, in different domains, the venture capital world, and how he and his partner take a generalist approach um, to, uh, to to sourcing interesting investment ideas. Um, and then I began the uh, the season, so to say, uh, earlier in uh, in January with Elliot Higgins. Elliot is the founder of Bellingcat. Bellingcat is a collective of citizen journalists who use social media and open source uh, information to connect the dots and solve some of the world's most pressing problems. And so when I say the world's most pressing problems, they were able to conclude that the Russians shot down Malaysia Flight 17 before any government agency was able to do so. They were able to identify that uh, Bashar Assad had used chemical weapons before any uh, government agency was able to. And he does it in this fascinating way and connecting dots. Um, And so uh, that's a really interesting conversation, which I'd encourage you to listen to. And lastly, uh, the advertisement, uh, the uh, the 22nd advertisement for my own book, Think for Yourself, um, available everywhere. Books are sold, <laughs> and so uh, please also consider uh, you can support this webinar series and the podcast, etc. There's a Patreon account for that as well, uh, and the, the link is there. So, with that long-winded uh, introduction of uh, of of the prior uh, guests at the on this webinar series, Joan, I'd love you to introduce yourself. Um, you have such an impressive background, and you've done so much interesting work. Uh, I'd love you to describe it for everyone here in terms of how you would. Uh, Describe yourself. (laughs)
1: Um, Well, I have studied social inequality for over 40 years. Um, It really began when I was a little girl in Venezuela and Venezuela in the 1960s, looking at the unbelievable inequalities uh, in Venezuela. And then I have brought it uh, home and started studying. Motherhood actually, when I became a mother and realized, whoa, this is like I'm almost about to quit, and I'm a tenured law professor, so that's weird. That's hard. Yeah. Um, so I'm a, uh, and now I've um, more recently studied um, race and, gen- and gender and uh, how they play out in professional workplaces and social class and how it's shaping American politics. So I'm a University of California law professor and I study social inequality.
0: Interesting. So I love the fact that you talked about Venezuela and your sort of early days. I was gonna ask the question, John, which is, did you always know you wanted to be a law professor? Uh, you know, did, were you a, a little girl running around the school saying, you know what, I'm gonna write about class. This doesn't seem fair. Uh, was there some catalyst that sort of brought that out in you? I'm always curious as to where people find that first kernel of interest.
1: I remember when I was nine years old standing before um, uh, an altar of a church in Mm -hmm. Peru and I had noticed earlier, I said to my dad, it's really weird dad, why is there all of this green land down in the valley and all of these terraces going up the mountains and he said, it's very simple. Um, the Indians farm on the terraces because the church owns all of the green land. Uh, and I went like, that's weird. And then later on that day, I was standing in front of an, uh, an altar at a church and it was just like sheer gold leaf. Yeah. And I just thought, you know, this is really wrong. Um, but when I was living in Caracas, there were, I was really shocked to see, I remember the first time I ever went into Caracas, Uh, there were what they used to, and I think still called barrios, which are little, um, which are slum neighborhoods going up the mountains where you had houses built like of chalkboards and stuff like that. And I was, as a little girl from, a little uh, girl from Princeton, New Jersey, I was just, just aghast. It made a very deep impression on me.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's interesting. Uh, Just out of curiosity, Any quick thoughts on Venezuela today? Uh, Obviously, suffering, struggling, class is defined differently now uh, down there, I would think.
1: I just think what Venezuela stands for is a message that the United States would do well to heed, which is that if you ignore uh, social inequality for so long, it uh, corrodes the quality of life for every single group. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. That's certainly
1: what's happened in Venezuela.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, Okay. So, but then you made your way to law school. Like, so, okay. So you see this sort of social inequity. I mean, sociology, there were other, other ways you could have
1: gone. I remember when I was a senior uh, in college, I took an anthropology course for the first time and I was all excited. And I went to the teacher and I said I want to go to graduate school in anthropology yeah. and he said well that would be fantastic you'd be a great student you'd definitely get in. Um, one tip though if you go to graduate school in anthropology you just have to look at it as, as a really interesting way to spend like seven or eight years of your, to- of your time and there may not be a job afterwards like I am <laughs> no longer interested in going to anthrop- yeah. anthropology. And so I, um, I went to the family business. I'm one of the fourth, uh, we now have five generations in a row in my family that have gone to law school. And I went to law school basically because I knew I wanted to be a professor, but I uh, really didn't want to end up uh, a homemaker. And I realized that if I went into a field like history or anthropology, I would very likely end up without a career because Mm -hmm. of the the geographical, the requirement for geographic mobility, which, and certainly in my generation, women didn't have. They still don't have to the same amount of men. So I just went kicking and screaming and whining to law school.
0: It seems to have worked out. It seems to have been it, done. It
1: worked, it out. Okay. It worked out,
0: okay. Seems to be okay. All right. So let's jump forward uh, a bunch, on to this fabulous book you wrote. Um, started with an HBR piece that you wrote on election night, 2016, correct? Uh, yes. I have here too. Yes, here we go. This piece. <laughs> um, what inspired it? Why did why'd you write it? What brought these dots together for you? that led you to 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 go in this direction?
1: Well it was really a wonderful um HBR editor Sarah Green Carmichael who has moved on but really brilliant editor. She had been pestering me to write about the election um, running up to Trump's election in 2016 and I've been saying no, everybody else is saying what there is to say I don't want to I don't want to go there and then on um, election night, she texted me and said, now you really have to write uh, about this. You study gender and you study um, social class and this is all about gender class and race. And so I had left an election night party because around 7.30 um, West Coast time because I realized Trump was gonna win. Hmm. And, I was just like, uh, I was in shock. <clears throat> um, although I, I kind of I kind of felt my bones he was gonna win for weeks before. Um, and so I just said, finally, I'm just gonna say it. Um, I had written um, uh, a, a academic book in 2008 called Reshaping the Work Family Debate, Why mm-hmm. Men and Class Matter, which grew out of actually some lectures at Harvard, the, um, Massey Lectures on American Civilization and that, but the the stuff that I had talked about with relate to social class, I mean the gender stuff just like walked out the door. It was like really easy. Yeah. The social class, I felt like it had fallen into a black hole. Really? And, Interesting. Yeah, it was just like there wasn't an audience for it. Um, And then election night, I just said Americans have to understand this, and specifically my San Francisco liberal friends got to understand what's going on, and I'm just going to say it, and I don't care about the consequences, because it was quite terrifying, actually, to say, yeah. and so I started writing about my father-in-law, married into a white working-class family 43 years ago, and um, then I did my said, here's why Trump won, mm-hmm. and If you don't want him to win again, here's what you're gonna have to do. And it went totally viral. It's been read now. Last time I looked by 3.7 million people.
0: Yep, yep, yep. No, it makes a ton of sense. I love uh, where you, you went with that Joan because the subtitle to the book actually gets at what you're hinting at here, right? Which is overcoming class cluelessness in America. What do you mean by that? Was it just the liberal elites, just the coastal folks that didn't get this, or was it more broad in terms of your thinking of people that didn't quite understand the class dynamic at work here?
1: Well, Americans have always been very eager to deny the existence of class, um, but it uh, that the white working class book is really about a broken relationship between the white working class <clears throat> and um, White elites, uh, especially progressive elites. And that relationship has gone really, really far south. And I have to say, it hasn't improved um, since Trump's election. If anything, it's gotten worse. Yep. And for me, it's um, so shocking. I mean, you know, my, uh, my, 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 My stock in trade is social inequality, and social inequality is is uncomfortable for people. Um, But facing class inequality is particularly painful for what I call the PME, the professional managerial elite, really the top 16% in the United States, the likes of us. And the reason it's so painful is that um, we have a very strong meritocracy uh, belief system that we are where we are because we've worked really hard and we're just the smartest ones around yeah. and the recognizing the invisible escalator of social class in america um, really destabilizes it produces what's called identity threat uh, because it it shows that you know yeah we did work really hard but as i always say so did, so do did hotel housekeepers And why did we end up where we were? A lot of it, not all of it, a lot of it is class privilege. And um, for people who are so deeply married to thinking themselves as the winner in a meritocratic race, that can be a very threatening message that they do a lot to deny.
0: Well, I love it in the book you talk about, um, and I think it's a quote that you say is often circulated among the working class to describe some of these professional and managerial elites. say, uh, born on third base, but hit a, thinks he hit a triple. Uh, yeah. or she hit a triple, excuse me. I don't mean to be yes. specific. Uh, that's what you're getting at here, right? Which is this-
1: absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that really sums it up. Born on third base, thinks he hit a triple. The other quote is an actual quote, um, and I'll clean it up. But it's like, uh, uh, I'm basically I'm I'm glossing. I'm sick of being around bossed around by some college kid that doesn't know anything about my job, but is perfectly happy to tell me how to do it. And it, it the original quote was not anything. Um, yeah. So I mean, there's just a lot of anger there, by. Um, Middle. These aren't really poor people. I think it's important to recognize that the class dynamic that's driven American politics since the 70s and ever more so is a very specific broken relationship between this PME, this professional manager elite, the top, say, roughly 20 percent, and the broad middle classes, the middle 53 percent. Mm-hmm. the fragile and failing middle classes, yep. by the way. Okay. That is the relationship that for America, to understand American politics is the key relationship. Um, the, the PME has a lot easier time in coming to terms with privilege when it comes to their relationship to the poor. Yep. That feels very comfortable. Um, but the idea that their, their relationship To the middle class is what they have a big problem with. And it's, you know, they think of themselves as middle class, you know, and like bless their hearts, like you're not middle class. You're like top three percent. But if you think of yourself as middle class, then you can conceptualize that you have relation, you have privilege with respect to the poor. But you know, these people with pink flamingos in their yards, they just have bad taste. That's the and they and they never got ahead. That's the difference between you and them.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I know, in fact, another one, another book that I really enjoyed reading that you reference a lot is "Hillbilly Elegy," Um, and I I recently saw the movie, uh, and you 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 feel it like you know where he's at Yale Law School, and you're just like he just doesn't understand that like a summer internship gets you thirty grand, and this is sort of middle class like what what this is not middle class like right? It's just palpable the difference there. Um, You know, Joan, you talk also in the book about.
1: Can I t- can I jump in for one? Yeah, please. He actually tells a story in *Hillbilly Elegy* about um, being at an interview dinner and, and rushing into the men's room because he doesn't know which fork to use. Yep. And the stunning thing is that that is exactly a story that was told in my family when my. Um, New York Jewish mother was visiting my New England wasp's father <laughs> for the very first time at his home. And she was completely panic stricken because she didn't know what for to use. What so,
0: yeah. uh,
1: so, I mean, my family's been bridging these class divides for at least two generations.
0: Yeah. It's funny. I think I remember having a similar experience at one point being a class migrant myself. Right. So I, uh, I, I understand that, you know, it's interesting. I just pulled out the book and I found the page I was looking for here. You talk about how class is like, it's almost spreading, right? It's sort of this, this, this under the surface force that's infiltrating all sorts of things. And, you know, uh, I found the story actually quite fascinating about coffee even right? You talk about how coffee's become a class item, right? So maybe describe that a little bit because I think- you I have call it the class terms.
1: structure of coffee.
0: Yeah. yeah,
1: I mean, when I was coming up in the, in the 50s and 60s, there was no class structure for coffee. There was good coffee and there was bad coffee and that was and most of it was a bad coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, but now where you buy your coffee really is a strong signal of how sophisticated you are, how distinguished you are, um, and so some some people buy their coffee at um, at Dunkin' Donuts. So there's the down market coffee, mm-hmm. good mal- good coffee actually. Down
0: market. It's coffee. interesting you call it down rather than mass.
1: Yeah, well, I'm using these terms um, self consciously. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> yep. Um, and uh, then there's Starbucks which is definitely a step up, although not in San Francisco. In San Francisco, Starbucks is the downmarket coffee. You would never go into a Starbucks if you had any claim to sophistication. You would go to a Mm -hmm. local fair trade coffee shop where coffee costs preferably maybe $7 a cup. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you notice how buying coffee has become a, a class act, a way of enacting class status. And this all really comes from a French sociologist named Pierre Bourdieu, who wrote an amazing book called Distinction, which totally changed my life. Um, And he basically said that um, good taste and um, uh, having distinction is a way that elites um, differentiate themselves from non-elites and then negotiate amongst themselves over which fraction of the elite they've attained. And so good taste does that cultural work, but it also does the cultural work of transmitting social inequality.
0: Yeah. Do you think that's true in a lot? I mean, my guess is it's probably the same feelings sort of generated with cars, right? I mean,
1: are you an Audi?
0: Are you a BMW? Are you a Jeep? Are you a- Oh, out
1: here, it's like either your Tesla or your low rent.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, it's interesting because I do think this, the the sort of stratification, it's sort of you know, business schools teach this, right? Business schools are, okay, this is price differentiation, right? If someone's willing to pay a hundred thousand dollars for a car, don't sell them a $70,000 car, sell them the hundred thousand dollar one. And if there's another person who's only got 85, get an $85,000 car for them. If there's another one who's 50, get them 50. If there's one for 20, offer that too. And you'll get the most out of each person. So, how much of this is just an, a natural output of capitalism and the pressures thereof?
1: It's not even capitalism; it's humans. Um, humans um, very naturally establish status or um, status pecking orders. That's just something that humans do, and um, dogs do too, but different yeah. issue. Uh, uh, but the what becomes um, really poisonous in contemporary politics is when this very natural human tendency to sort of crave crave status differentials mm-hmm. becomes locked in. And specifically when um, people who have uh, higher expectations, like who used to be middle class, all of a sudden see their their hold on the middle class um, failing. Uh, this is auteur's work of like that Virtually every American used to do better than their parents, but now only 50% do. Yep. And the people who are um, really angry electorally, they aren't the poor, because the poor, um, you know, they never had expectations of power. Um, now maybe a little bit more so with the movements towards racial justice, right. but the group that's really full of rage. is the fragile and failing middle class and the areas that um, dominated by them that used to be thriving. Um, And that's because they feel in a generation ago, their parents and uncles, they had a a modest but solid and secure middle class standard of living. And they've seen that disappear. And they're just absolutely furious.
0: Yeah. How much of this do you think just is just the timing of how a couple of big tectonic trends hit at the same time. So for instance, 1960s into the 70s, we've got a whole bunch of uh, civil rights activities and some progress being made on that front. We have technology starting to accelerate in manufacturing, some early robots, some some early stage IT implemented. We got globalization starts picking up into the 80s, into the 90s, you start getting more free trade, more technology, and it all coincides at the same time with a hollowing out of American manufacturing, if you will, right? Uh, and sort of those middle class, in the real middle class sense, stable jobs. Um, and so it's easy to point, if, it's hard to point your finger at anything that ultimately created these dynamics, but you can sort of say this collection of dynamics came through at the same time, roughly, and created a toxic cocktail. Is I that fair?
1: Try to think of it as, this, as the result of politics, not economics because after all, there are other parts of the world where exactly the same set of worldwide forces didn't produce the kind of um, radical, unconscionable inequality uh, that we have in the United States. Um, it didn't produce the equivalent of the withering of the American dream. Germany is a good example. Germany understood because of World War II um, that you know, when when white people see their futures disappearing they can get really ugly Um, because they did. And so they have been very, very attuned to making sure that there is a robust middle class that blue collar uh, careers are treated with respect that blue collar careers yield a stable future Um, and, um, so I don't think it's, this is, this is not an inevitability. It's the way we responded politically to, um, globalization and the rest of those forces.
0: Yeah. Well, it's also my, my sense is the Germans view the plumber with dignity. He has, there's dignity in a profession, right? There's dignity in these jobs, whereas some people, and I think you, you Fabulous description uh, of uh, admitted faux pas on your end, but I'll bring it up because it's in the book, not to embarrass you. But this idea of, you know, the elites—it's what do you do? What do you do, Joan? Yeah. In fact, I even started our conversation this way: What do you do? And yeah. whereas the working class, it's not what you do; it's who you are right yeah. it's sort of, uh, your identity is different if you will your sense of being is different yeah. so maybe share that story about your was it your reunion or maybe just your husband's no, reunion no it's
1: my husband's reunion i i i'm a silver spoon girl born and bred um but we were my my husband's father was a factory worker in waterbury connecticut who never made more than $12,000 a year um although this was a while back so but Um, So he went back to his high school reunion. My husband uh, and I went back to his high school reunion. And um, he's the boy who made good. You know, he's the boy who flew up to the majors like nobody else did in his high school class. And um, so uh, he, we were at his reunion. And I mean, I, you know, born anthropologist and very attuned to this, I had understood you don't ask, what do you do? Because I'd had awkward moments and early in my marriage, like, oh, Um, uh, my husband had forgotten this, evidently. And so he asked one of his classmates, hey, what do you do? And the guy got very close and with a very red face. And he said, I sell toilets. And he was clearly really offended. This had been a humiliating question for him. It had been, Jim was being treated like a supercilious uh, elite person who had forgotten where he, it was like, oh, I mean, all he did is like ask the most normal question in our social circle. But it just shows you, I mean, the elite's are a a little nutsy about the extent to which we identify ourselves with our jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that's just not true in non-elites because that's not the source of uh social honor for them. Yeah. Um their very their social honor stems from being an elder in their church or being a good neighbor or being a great father and grandfather. They people, you know, people put their eggs in baskets they can fill.
0: Sure. So we have a question here that I'm just going to read um, because I think it's a relevant one and can help us go in a different, a little bit different direction. It says, Professor Williams, uh, in your book, you mentioned the potential advantages of a coalition between working class whites and Blacks. How do you think that happens, particularly when affirmative action sometimes pits them against each other, especially when competing for dollars and jobs? Also, many thanks for writing this very important book, Best Wives Charlie Grant. So. Um, well,
1: pretty much since about 1670, white elites have tried to drive a wedge between um, black and white non-elites. This is often called the wages of whiteness. It's all over Don Calhoun, for example, who um, advocated slavery and said, you know, the, slave, the importance of slavery is that it erases class distinctions among whites and makes it so that class doesn't matter because you're all white people. So in other words, you're dirt poor, notice the insult, and you're white trash, notice the insult, but at least you're white. Um, so we're going to erase the hidden injuries of class by focusing on the fact that you're white and we're white and everything's hunky-dory. This works out really well for white elites, right? Because if, uh, I mean, if, if elites, non-elites of color are exploited, which they are, so are white, white non-elites, but they don't get together because um, we've got white non-elites very focused on, I'm white, I'm white, I'm white. Um,
0: yeah.
1: This is uh, a dynamic that's existed in American politics for a really long time. And the only way to uh, try to interrupt it is to find some way to explain to these fragile and failing middle-class white families that um, they are fragile and failing economically, not because they are white, but because they are working class. Um, Without a language of class, they use, they know that they have gotten, pardon my language, screwed. They have gotten screwed. Um, and they're looking for a reason. So if we're only handing them race, that's not working well for us. It's also yeah. not true, but that's a different issue. It's working very poorly. Yeah. Um, in terms of the um, African, uh, the affirmative action, um, it, it, I think that in some ways, it's uh, the principle is very simple. The application is more complicated. Certainly in um, professional jobs. I, um, and, in, and in, um, in college admissions, in my view, we should definitely have affirmative action. It's the only reason we have a black middle class. It's one of the main reasons we have women in predominantly, uh, formerly almost exclusively male jobs. Um, but um, we should also be doing affirmative action by class. Uh, my favorite study of a professional workplace is, they gave identical resumes, both of white men, one signaling um, membership in the elite by the listing polo, sailing, um, classical music, the other signaling that they were what I call a class migrant for, by listing counseling first-generation college students, country music, um, <clears throat> and pick up soccer, and found that Mr. Polo got 12 times the number of callbacks Um, as Mr. Uh, Country Music and, Mm -hmm. in fact, um, there was a 16% likelihood that Mr. Polo would get a call draft, but only a 1% likelihood that Mr. Country Music was. It was almost impossible. The class prejudice was so strong, it was almost impossible to survive. This has a big impact on professional jobs. Um, we were just stu- we we study organizations and we're working with one or a couple of organizations at a time. One is an engineering organization and there's a class effect there, but it's slight. But in a real estate company and law firm, um, uh, white working class men actually report lower levels of belonging even than people of color, mm. and the, the the gap between. Um, uh, continuing generation white men and people of color is pretty pretty damn huge. Uh, and so in those kinds of contexts, class is very important. And I think, um, for example, there should be affirmative action in higher education, but it should include people um, who are not from the from the professional managerial elite. That's not true in blue collar jobs, which are almost all almost all, almost all held by white, um, white working class men so obviously there you're not gonna you don't need affirmative action for white working class men
0: yeah yeah interesting um let's change directions for just a second here john something that i like to ask all of my guests which is do you have a favorite book or a book you'd recommend obviously i'm recommending white working class so you don't need to do that one (laughs) but uh, is there another book you'd recommend and then i'm going to ask you about movie or miniseries too
1: well, those are, those are two um, different, uh, my favorite book is actually Ludwig Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations. That is the book that okay. all of my work basically goes back to. The book I would recommend is um, Michelle Lamont's Dignity, uh, the Dignity of Working Man, which is the single best book about class um, in the United States um, except my agent requires me to say, of course, except mine. <laughs> <laughs> Since my agent is my brother, he keeps me on the straight and narrow. Uh, In terms of uh, miniseries, I'm not a big movie person, but I recommend two miniseries that I'm completely obsessed with. One is Tokyo Diner, which is amazing. Amazing. Tokyo Diner? Tokyo Diner. If you're a born anthropologist, you must see Tokyo Diner. Um, If you're interested in people or a good story or or a show with heart, uh, it's about a little tiny diner in Tokyo. It's in Japanese, but that's okay. Um, and then the second is, is a show called Stitzel, which is now just uh, going on. It's about Haredim, It's about ultra Orthodox Jews. Um, this one is in Hebrew. Uh, also a fabulous show with just a bunch of a, a, a bunch of head and a bunch of heart.
0: Okay. Good. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for that little, uh, I always like to squeeze those topics in. Um, while we're talking, and you mentioned uh, your agent, uh, let's talk about one of your publicists, uh, or at least self-described publicist, uh, is uh, someone who who's called you on your cell phone. Um, maybe you can <laughs> describe this story to others here.
1: Well, I was in a meeting and I couldn't answer the phone. So I was like, shut up, shut up, shut up, because my phone rang. I'd forgotten to turn it off. So then I'm walking away from the meeting and I pick up the message and it's just like, hello, Professor Williams, this is Joe Biden. (laughs) And I was completely freaked out. Uh I called a colleague of mine. I said, what do I do? She said, don't be a fool, call him back. Uh I called him back. He was very gracious. He really, really liked the book. He talked to me all about his dad and the union hall. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he said, Professor Williams, I love talking to you, but 3,000 people are waiting for me on this. So I think I better go on stage. I felt like, whoa, did that happen? Yep. This is before he was president, of course. <laughs> yep,
0: yep, yep. Interesting. Um, so let's spend a little bit of time talking about uh, what you think and should be done. Right. Um, so I know towards the end of the book, you've got a couple of ideas. You say, you know, some people that really do benefit from the government don't even know they benefit from the government. They you know exactly. there's, there's a bunch of things out there where, you know, you might say, well, hold on a sec. You know, you like to think that you meritocratically achieved, but you sort of were handed. You know, there were some steps here that were built for you to climb. Uh, you didn't just climb. Um, how do, you, how do you actually do that, though? I mean.
1: Yeah, um, really concrete ways. Uh, I mean, if the Democrats actually want to build a coalition and win, they need two crucial groups. They need people of color, and they need the white working class, or at least enough of them. And that's the only reason why Democrats won in 2020. We got more of the white working class, and we got more uh, people of color out and voting. Um, those were the swing states. I think it's important to remember that uh, Biden won, if 40,000 votes had changed, Biden would have lost. That's how close it was. Um, And so what Biden has done very intelligently and strategically is focused on economic issues um, because um, economic issues, uh, there's a real cultural gap between the white working class and elites on cultural issues like abortion, School busing, family values. The Democrats and they, you know, the progressive elites in the Democratic Party and the white run class are very divergent. So there's no coalition there on cultural issues. That's why Republicans have come in. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, a lot, a a very important part of the Democratic electorate called the anti-elites, are very liberal on on economic issues. Uh, and any way that you help non-elites economically, um, you're going to help people of color disproportionately, because that's who's in non-elites in the United States. And so, what you see Biden doing um, through the uh, the stimulus bill and now the infrastructure bill is focusing attention on economics, focusing attention on people should be and feel entitled to a solid, um, stable, middle-class standard of living. And um, making, and Republicans are trying to focus people's attention on trans bathrooms because they know that's going to work for them. Abortion rights, all of those um, issues. And I think it's very painful for many of my closest friends and for me, because uh, we feel really passionately about those cultural issues. But you know, my attitude is if you weren't an elite, you wouldn't expect to control everything and for everything to go your own way. And I don't. Um, that is part of giving up elite privilege. If you want a coalition with people, you have to figure out where your interests and their interests align.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's, uh, it does seem even on a geopolitical sort of level that a stronger America a domestically stronger America, a more uh, a, a less less polarized America for better, uh, right, uh, is is probably better able to rise to different challenges that we need to as a country, rather than you know starting to think about us as a unit in the world, U.S. versus China, you know, climate change these. Cross border threats that exist, whether it's a pandemic, etc. You know, uh, I think that's that's probably key. Um, Given that I just mentioned the pandemic, Joan, I'm very curious if you think the sort of COVID dynamics had a disproportionate class impact in some capacity, and how that might have changed your thinking at all, if if at all.
1: No, I didn't. My (laughs) Um, husband always says I can see gender in a ham sandwich. Um, I, my only response is, yeah, class and race too, but yeah. I'm sorry. Look at what happens. Look at has what happened under COVID. Gender inequality has taken off. Class inequality has taken off. The um, uh, people with bachelor's degrees have not been very ill affected and people without high school degrees have been wiped out. Um, and each notch they, uh, down down the pecking order, people are more negatively affected. And racial inequality has gotten uh, has has gotten in, in uh, uh, it's gotten so exacerbated um, by COVID. And so my attitude is like, I know I'm obsessed with social inequality, but you have to admit it's there. Um, and COVID is a good example. I mean, this is a bug. This is a bug. And what have we turned it into as human beings? We've turned it into um, reinforcing and exacerbating various sorts of social inequality.
0: Yeah. You know, you you mentioned the sort of gender, and I know that's a topic you've done a lot of work on, but I found it really interesting in the book where you talk about the different approaches to, uh, to sort of how, white working class men versus professional men think about sexism and sort of family level responsibilities. And I think, pardon my summary of it, Jones. so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my recollection was it was professional men do a great job of talking the talk. um, And they don't necessarily implement it as much in terms of time spent with family and and sort of home duties. Um, Whereas working-class men may not talk the talk, but they definitely walk the walk, meaning they're spending more time with families. Uh, what's going on there?
1: Hypocrisy. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that one study showed that um, men have a very um, unrealistic understanding of the extent to which they contribute to the household or don't contribute. And the higher the class status of the man the greater the gap between his self-image and uh, what he actually delivered. Um, mm-hmm. That's because particularly elite men, they have phenomenal pressures on them, yeah. um, negotiating their, uh, claw- clawing up the fractions of the elite. And so they need their wives to play a certain role and pick up a certain role. And that's 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 the traditional role. Yeah. Um, and um, also these are professional men so that they're, their identities, what do you do, are totally framed around how successful a man they are. But L- listen to how we use that uh, yeah. term. Um, and, um, and so the for, for 30, 20, 30 years, professional managerial men have said they would like to spend more time with their families, but they don't. Mm-hmm. They don't. And it's this not even, and even in COVID, I mean, the most amazing study in COVID It looked at um, when mom was the only person engaging in remote work, she did wildly more housework, childcare, and homeschooling. When dad was the only person engaging in remote work, he didn't do more of any of it. Yeah. Um, He's, you Hmm. know, one of my first well-known book was called Unbending Gender. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, it's interesting. Those dynamics are definitely visible and I, I, I've sensed them. Uh, so what about the recent, I mean, sort of the interaction, I don't want to be too academic and think about it, but the interaction between current, what we would call racial tensions, I mean, the Asian uh, dynamics, The obviously uh, we had lots of racial tensions last year, etc. cetera, and class, like how do you disentangle this stuff? I mean, this is, Aren't they all intermingled at some level? I mean,
1: yeah, it's really. Um, I mean, it's very complicated question. and very simple.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: this, we have a racial hierarchy in the United States, um, always have, and I don't know, maybe always will. It doesn't have to be as awful as it always has been, uh, right. and this is a moment where there's, you know, a certain amount of hopefulness that people, um, um, that white people will finally understand um, the inner dynamics of, of racism, how racism is structural. It, was, it has is built into structures. It's been built into policing since policing was invented. But in order to address racism in policing, you have to do things like uh, um, what we're seeing now with the um, Minneapolis trial, you have to break that, um, that blue wall of silence uh, where you um, close ranks around people who have <laughs> killed people for no good reason. Um, that's kind of structural change that's gonna re- be required to change racism, difference in use of force policies um, you can't just have you know a good little heartfelt chat about racism and expect it to go away. No, these things are structured uh, and they're deeply structural. Um, and racism against Asian Americans is also, I mean, I live in California. Uh, there were lynchings of Asian Americans not so long ago in California. Uh, so the thing that's been um, bewildering for me as someone who thinks a lot about um, uh, Uh, racism and thinks a lot about social class is there's been this kind of zero sum game set up where if you care about class you don't care about race and if you care about race you don't care about class Mm -hmm. which is odd because people never say if you care about class you don't care about gender they would go like well that would be weird Mm. but um, there's been this very artificial zero sum game set up so that actually um, people, uh, I was actually on another uh, another uh, event last week and I started out talking about my incredibly cool new research on um, women of color in tech that found for example, that there's a big differential between white men and white women um, in terms of uh, what I call prove it again bias, white women have to prove themselves a lot more than white men do. But there's like a 20 percentage point gap between white women and women of color who have to prove themselves a lot more than white women do. So I started talking about that. And then I started talking about class later on. And in the chat, there's this like, well, you know, Professor Williams clearly cares about class and not about race. And the expert goes yeah. at race. And it's like, no.
0: <laughs> you don't yeah. actually
1: hear what I said. So yeah. this is a preconception that's so strong that people literally tune out the evidence.
0: Sure. Well, it's all that's part of the, I think the question was a little bit of all these things interconnect and interact. Like it's really hard sometimes to different
1: they're, vectors of social inequality. They're different causal structures. Yeah. They're not mutually exclusive.
0: Yeah, let let me turn to the next question, which I think is a really interesting one here. Uh, We've seen a decline of marriage uh, and referencing Robert Putnam's work here um, in the working class. Is this a cause of some of the working class ills or is this a symptom of these working class ills? And then a a related question, any thoughts on cross-class marriages and how they may play out?
1: Like mine, right? (laughs) Um, yeah, there has been a decline of marriages. Uh, marriage. First, there was a decline among African-Americans when blue-collar jobs shriveled up for African-Americans in the 60s. Um, I mean, one of the main expressions of structural inequality is the ina- lack of access to stable jobs. Um, and what happened? And then it, and more recently, and then Moynihan basically said, "Oh, the reason these people are poor is because they're crazy family structure." So then it happened among white people when the uh, economic fortunes of white working class men shriveled up their marriages began, their marriage rate totally plummeted. And then Charles Murray goes like, these people have bad character too. That's the problem with them. This is not a problem of bad character. One of the key points of conflict in marriages is conflict over economics. And there is literally more conflict in marriages where people are feeling economically embattled, and we've been talking about how men are probably lamentably uh, gender traditional, so are women. So um, women uh, often, they don't want to marry guys who won't be good providers. They they think of them, the guys maybe think of themselves as losers and the women maybe think of themsel- them as losers. So those are the reasons why marriage rates fall when you lack access to a, sta- uh, a modest but stable standard of living.
0: Mm-hmm. And the cross-class question? Cross-class oh, um, marriages.
1: cross-class marriages. I mean, I'm obviously super interested in this topic. Um, it is. Uh, um, it is. Uh, I mean, I just I like to tell the story. Shortly after I'd been married, we were living in a house in uh, apartment in Cambridge, and my my parents-in-law came and came and stayed with us. And first of all, I was really surprised they stayed in our apartment. Like nobody in my family ever stayed in their kids' apartment. So they stayed in our apartment. And they were helping us wash the dishes and my mother-in-law said to me, "Where do you keep the butter?" And I was just without thinking, you know, sassy girl that I am. I said, I said, "Oh, under the bed." She went and put it under the bed. And I thought like, that's how weird I am to her. And that's how weird she is to Me, bless her heart, she's, you know, I love her to pieces. She's now 98, 98 last week. But I'm bridging those class divides, is uh, often uh, um, a fertile source of conflict um, in cross class marriages.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Given we're running out of time, I want to move on to another question here about religion. how does religion factor into these class dynamics, uh, religion as a source of identity versus uh, some sort of, um, you know, uh, fringy on the side, I think you use the term yeah. spiritual, but not religious type. Yeah, religion.
1: yeah, I'm spiritual, not religious. What yeah. that that's a f- distinction. I, um I have the education and high human capital to calm the world religion, calm the world's religion and get an artisanal mix just perfect for my individuality, it's like, and then, you know, religion for non-elites often is a um, is a form of psychological help that my crowd gets through psych- psychiatrists. It's a form of economic help that my, cra- get, uh, my crowd gets through daddy's wallet or trust fund. Um, it's a form of social distinction, um, an elder of the church that my crowd gets through their elite professions. Um, And the condescension towards religion, religious people is another form of class condescension. And if, you know, if you love the way politics are going, basically, definitely consider you uh, uh, recommend you can keep on doing it.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think towards the end of your book, you, you characterize it. Sadly. Fabulously is how I say it, right? Because it's sad that it's true. But fabulous because you put the words on it. Uh, you say class cluelessness has become callousness. Yeah, yeah. I think this is what you're getting at in this dynamic. This sort of it's not just that I happen to have had better opportunities and had a, a, the opportunity to, to capitalize those opportunities economically. It's that you are actually worse than me.
1: Yes, and actually, by the way, that's not my sentence. That's Sarah Green Carmichael's sentence. That just shows you how lucky I was to have her as an editor. But She's yeah, great. Though.
0: I've, I've spent time with her. She's fabulous. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, the, um, I mean, open condescension is infuriating. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs dignity. And if we don't give it to them, they will seek it elsewhere. And that gets very ugly, as we've seen. And it's particularly disturbing when elite white people are very uh, condescending and insulting to non-elite white people because guess where that anger gets put? It gets put on people of color. So this broken relationship between elite whites and middle-class whites, I just think the white community has to own it um, and fix it because the results are um, unconscionable.
0: Yeah yep a question relating to that I want to ask you that's here on the uh, on my phone that came in is is this why Hillary Clinton lost? is I think it's referencing the deplorables comment but uh is, is it sort of this they just are not intelligent. they're sexist, they're racist they're they're deplorable, right? I mean yeah
1: She lost, she she was, um, Hillary Clinton, I mean, she would have been such a great president, but she's very poor at politics, bless her heart. Um, So the deplorables was open class condescension. The idea that you should vote for me because I'm gonna break the glass ceiling. That means, okay, great. Now elite white women get to have the jobs of elite white men. It was so clueless from a class standpoint. Um, And also, um, there's a lot of anger against elites that very often gets more readily displayed towards white women than white men. You kind of expect white men to have authority over you, but when even their women have authority over you, that's felt as really an affront to masculine dignity.
0: Hmm. It's interesting because- Class
1: and sexism.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because one of the other things I remember that you mentioned was about likability and gender uh, and how, again, apologies if I'm not doing, my my recollection's not doing the job well here, but likability is required for women, but optional for men or or something to that effect.
1: 40 years of research, 40 years of research, mandatory for women, uh, optional for many men.
0: And you're saying that as a public facing elite dynamic or just generically across all no,
1: the period period um, that's true in the workplace it's true in politics uh, but this is one of the ways in which it plays out in politics a woman has to prove herself over and over again so remember Hillary Clinton displaying her resume that was to avoid prove it again bias but by displaying her resume she was not being modest self-effacing and nice which is what the research shows that women are supposed to be So, um, she escaped the prove it again, bias that women face, but triggered what I call tightrope prescriptive bias.
0: Yeah. Complicated stuff. (laughs) So uh, what, so what words of wisdom can you leave us with here, Joan, in terms of thoughts or, or hopes or things you'd like to see happen, uh, you know, for our society, what, what can, what can be done? to improve this situation and improve our, or decrease the polarization?
1: I mean, I think Biden is doing many of the right things. Um, I wish my friends would do many of the right things. And calling people stupid and racist is not going to help. It is going to uh, fuel racial racism. It's going to further hurt people of color. Now, um, when people are being racist, you need to calmly say they are being racist and that's not acceptable. But I'm just talking about writing off everything they do. I'm not even gonna listen to them because they're stupid and racist, stupid and racist. That is further going to hurt the country. It's further going to help um, econ- yeah. you know, racialized economic populism. It's further gonna hurt people of color. Don't do it, um, elite white people, get your act together.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I think I've heard it described as illiberal liberalism, sort of. We all are for, you know, freedom of speech, just not from them because they just those are not people we want freedom of speech for, right? So, uh, but look, that's great. That's fabulous advice. We should be open-minded to multiple perspectives. Lines up with my thinking on books, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Many, many perspectives are better than one, and so let's include everyone's perspective. Uh, so, Joan, we're out of time. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much you. for your I've time enjoyed here. It. Thank you for writing this book, fabulous book. I recommend it to everyone who will listen to me um, uh, that it's a, a worthwhile read and I'll help you understand what's happening in America and possibly help overcome some of this cluelessness, which is uh, plaguing us. And uh, so anyway, thank you, Joe. Really appreciate it.
1: Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself
0: podcast. If you find value in these discussions, we hope you'll consider supporting this series by becoming a member of the Think for Yourself community. More information can be found at www.patreon.com slash mancharamani. And please
1: do subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify.